The reason I wanted to play that tonight was we're talking about the uh, promise that the Lord Jesus gave of the Holy Spirit. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water in John chapter 7, verse 38. And tonight we're talking in the Christian spiritual life discussion about our power to love, the Christian's power to love. And it is the love of the Lord Jesus Christ shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit of God toward others. Let's take a moment for silent prayer if we need to confess any sins to God and I'll open us in prayer. Father, when we bring our requests to you, we always do it with thanksgiving. When we bring our gratitude to you, it's always from a position, from a standpoint of having confessed our sins because you've promised based on your character, your kindness, your goodness, your faithfulness and justice that you'll forgive us and cleanse us on the work of Jesus Christ, that he's done it already. Thank you that and when we walk in the light, as you yourself are in the light, that your son, the blood of Jesus Christ, goes on cleansing us from all sin. Thank you that we can truly walk in fellowship with you, enjoying your righteousness in our experience. Father, we, we say these words. We have some semblance of an idea, of course, from what you've given us in the scriptures. We have some idea of what this means, but we confess with our finite understanding next to your infinite righteousness, we are little babies, less than babies, trying, grasping to comprehend the light. Father, help us know you. We know that this is your purpose your purpose for our time, your purpose for our lives, that in knowing you, we would serve you, we would imitate you as beloved children. We look for that work of your spirit in us. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of questions that I've received from time to time that will help surface what we're talking about when we talk about the Christian's power to love. Of course, the power that we have been given by God, which equips us to love, is God the Holy Spirit working in us This is the first statement of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, agape love, joy, peace, patience. Love rejoices in, um, in, uh, love rejoices in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind. Love is described by the other aspects of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter five, verse 22 and 23. And so um, truly what pleases God in our lives is what he does through us. What he brings in his grace and expresses through us. This is to be pleasing to God is for him to express himself in and through us and that's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So we're talking about distinctive Christian love, distinctive Christian power, and that's the Christian spiritual life, what's provided for us because we have the Holy Spirit of God working in us. And so a couple of questions about this problem of love. This is what we're trying to address tonight. This is not the easy stuff. This is the hard stuff that makes Christianity distinct. How can I love someone for whom I feel absolutely no attraction? Now, just a minute. I'm not talking about merely romantic attraction like boy-girl, you know, the oldest story in the world, boy meets girl. I'm not talking about that kind of attraction. I'm talking about just... I don't want to go over there. I wouldn't cross the street to talk to that person. 
because they're putting me off, they're, they're, they're off-putting. There's a bubble. You never, you know what I mean about people with a bubble? They come in the room and all of a sudden you're like, ugh, that puts a bad taste on the mouth of my uh, uh, attitude. I just, I'm not gonna be around that. I'm not attracted to that at all. In fact, I'm kind of repulsed. It's repulsive. I'm talking about that kind of thing where you're commanded to love and the object of that love is not in your own energy lovable. No attraction. Well, we're commanded to do that. How do we do that? How can I love someone who's hurt me? This goes hand in hand with the attraction thing. Like the whole bond, the bridge between two parties that might be there in an amicable situation has been burned because they've hurt me. And I'm the kind of person that when someone hurts me, I, you know what? I just don't want to be around them. In fact, I don't want to think about them. And let's, uh, you know, moving away to India is starting to look pretty attractive so that I will never be around that person again because they're so repellent to me because they've hurt me. Um, some of you react to hurt differently, but some of you know exactly the feeling that I'm describing, that you don't want anything to do with such a person again because they have hurt you, and that's how that is. Now, of course, there's not a lot of thought in that feeling. That's just a feeling. It's just a repulsion we have when someone hurts us. And uh, we're almost like uh, you know, it's a, a clinical psychology experiment, like Pavlov's dog. Like, that shocked me, so I'm going to run away and not be around that anymore. But it's that's the most common thing in the world. In fact, a lot of the people that you reject and I reject, the reason we reject them is they've hurt us. We have a negative feeling toward them, and so we don't want to be around that negative feeling. You know, hurt me once, shame on you. Hurt me twice, shame on me, right? That old uh, adage. And the idea is I should know better than to put myself out and open myself up to be hurt again. With, there's wisdom there. The Lord Jesus taught us to be shrewd to be gentle as does, but shrewd as serpents, you know? And, uh, and see, love doesn't mean that you necessarily are opening yourself up uh, to be hurt by someone violating your trust, for example. Uh, if you love someone, but you don't trust them, that's possible. Loving somebody doesn't mean you um, give them the key to your house and your truck and your trailer, because that might go wrong, depending on the person that you're talking. You can love them without trusting them. You see what I mean? But how can I love someone who has hurt me? I'm commanded to. The Lord Jesus is good at it. How do I do that? How can I love someone who does not love me or even hates me? That's related to hurt, isn't it? But it's also related to not being attractive. There's no attraction between the two. One of the most unattractive things in the world is when someone says, looks at you and says, ugh, they don't like you, Right? Well, that hurts. It also is kind of repulsive. Well, if that's how they're going to be, I'm, well, I'm done, right? And that's how we are about people. And I think rejection is probably the greatest cause of hurt for some of us or the greatest that we've ever felt. We reject God all the time. We say no to him all the time. God's word is there and we say no to it. We neglect it. We are distracted from it. We want anything but what God has to say to us. But when we feel rejection from someone else, it can hurt so much. But how can I love someone who doesn't love me? Somebody that hates me. And if I say I do love such a person, is that not hypocritical? I don't feel affection toward anyone that hates me. 
I don't want to be with them. I don't want to be around them. I don't want a hug from them. I don't want to give them a hug. Well, um, if your definition of love means affection toward the other person, if you mean we get each other, we are amicable toward one another in a way that we agree on substantive things together, and we can walk together in that agreement of fellowship, if that's how you define loving someone, then it would be hypocritical to say that someone that hates me, we're pals. Loving is not the same as being friends with. That's hard for us because we're sloppy with our definitions. I think you have a twofold problem with answering this question, how can I love what to me seems unlovable? Without being hypocritical, twofold problem. First of all, we have a disagreement on the definition of Christian love, don't we? If Christian love, love one another as I've loved you, Jesus commands, if that means that I have affection for someone and I really just can't, can't wait to get next to them, and I just got to be there with them, and I just feel so great to be together. If that's what he means when he says, love one another as I've loved you. If that's, what def- if that's the definition of Christian love, and of course it's not, then of course you're hypocritical for saying for someone that you don't want to be next to, you don't want to talk to, we don't have anything in common. I even start talking about the things of God, and they start scoffing. I feel rejected. The, re- the truth is they've rejected my Savior. How do I love that? Well, there's not going to be a lot of affection there. There's not going to be a lot of good feeling towards someone, but that's not what we mean by Christian love. But we're asking the question, though, what is? What is Christian love? I think that most everyone here could probably tell me what I think Christian love is. I think you could probably, most of you, there is a quiz Okay, let's all take out a piece of paper and a number two pencil. I'm just kidding. It could be a number one pencil. Um, no, but, but think about this. What is Christian love if we let the Bible, not our culture, not my feelings, not my, well, I just read it and thought this, but let the Bible define it. Where would we go? Somebody help me out. Where would I go to get a good example of Christian love from which I could extract a good working definition? What would be the biblical rationale to ask the, answer the question, what is agape christian love what is that where would i go matthew 5 where does it say love in matthew 5 okay okay all right okay right so jesus jesus in matthew 5 that uh, you bless your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and so you're saying this would be an example of love, where would I find the statement of love stated as love, agape, where it therefore would be defined by the context, by the statement? Not the example, but I appreciate that. That's a good, you're right. That is an example. Where would I find a statement of it? John 13. John 13. What, what, what happens in John 13? Okay. And he says, love one another as I've loved you. By this all men will know that you are my disciples. You have love for one another. 13, 34, 35. Okay, where's a statement that tells me what that love looks like? 1 Corinthians 13 describes it. That's right. Love is, let's, let's go there. Let's go there real quick. 1 Corinthians 13. Verse four, love acts patiently. Your Bible doesn't say that, but the Greek does. Patient is a verb there. Love suffers long. Love acts kindly. 
It's not jealous, does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, does not provoke, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. See, love rejoices, love, joy, peace. Uh, Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, never fails. If there are gifts of prophecy, they're done away. They will be done away. If there are tongues, they'll cease. If there's knowledge, it'll be done away. For we know in part, but we prophesy in part. When the perfect comes, the parts will be done away. So, so he's going to go all through the spiritual gifts and, and, and get to faith, hope, and love are, are these three, but the greatest is love. Now, this is a description, a description of Christian love for sure, but I'm trying to figure out what it, exactly it is. I know what it does. When it, when it, it suffers long awesome it doesn't count a wrong suffered but what is it what is the thing to, that, what, what, if i love you am i just expecting a hug am i going for affection i mean that's because that's how we do it in our culture do i have this unstoppable force i'm sorry i couldn't help it i just love you i just had to come over right away because love all right is that is that what we mean like the, the unstoppable force of an emotional attraction See, that's what we say. We say love there on Saturday night and Sunday morning. We think that's what we're talking about. We're talking about Christian love. Love one another as I've loved you. And we think, I must be so attractive, so attractive to Jesus that he just can't help but come on down here and save me. But that, that's not the Bible. That's not what the New Testament's saying about love. In fact, I'm not attractive to him that way. Where does the Bible say what it is to love someone? Yeah, yeah. I think, if you'll turn, please, in your Bible, just put your finger in John chapter three. Just look in John three. So you, we all memorized it when, when the football, football players put it on their little, little blackout cheeks thing. John three in verse 16. I believe that we've misread it a little bit, just a little bit. One little particle in Greek can make a big difference. But in John 3, verse 16, we all know it says, you know what? I'm going to put it on the screen for you. We all know. You see that up there? Yeah, you can see that. All right. No problem with four. Four. Hutos. That's going to be the word that we don't get, but that comes later in the English translation. So I'll wait for it. For he loved, God loved, tone cosmo, the world. Hutos. And what we translate that word so to be is this is how big his love is. He loved it so much that he gave. But, and it can mean that, but it doesn't usually. Hutos plus hosta, the particle group, doesn't usually mean quantity. It means thus. This is how, this is the way. Thusly would be a better translation, but it would sound a little pedantic, so we'd say this way. For God loved the world in the following way, or I would even say method. This is how. He has loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. See, love is not there until it does. It starts with an intention. 
that we would have life. That's the ultimate result in John 3.16, that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. That's the goal, but it, that goal is an intention. It's in the heart of the person doing the loving, but it's not love in John 3.16 until thus he thusly gave. And so love gives, love does the thing. That's why it forgives in 1 Corinthians 13. See, you haven't loved in 1 Corinthians 13 until you haven't counted a wrong suffered. You forgive in advance, as it were. You don't count the wrong suffered. That's an action. Love is active in that passage and isn't tragically, isn't translated that way. I believe love, to, to borrow what's going on in John 3 and watching through, and we'll see in just a minute in uh, Ephesians 5. I believe love is the desire that acts benevolently towards someone else. The desire, the attitude that it isn't just an, an action without the attitude. If I do the loving thing, but I don't mean it, you know, that's not, you have to want for the other person to have the thing and then you have to act. And that's that whole complex of intention and action in the interest of the other, now let's make it Christian, in a disregard of self, love one another as I've loved you. Not for me, not primarily about my interest, it's for you. I'm not looking at me, I'm looking at how I can serve you. And that's that self-sacrificial intention, desire for the, the best of the other. Now, wait a second, let's make it Christian. What makes it the best? What's the best for the other person? What I think it is? What God says it is, Right? And what has God said what the best is for the other person? What's the best thing in the world for the other person? Any other person? Give me two syllables. They're always the answer. You make three syllables if you say it in Hebrew. Jesus. That's what they need. They need the Lord Jesus Christ. They need a relationship with God. They need eternity. They need to go beyond the sun. That's what the other person needs. I love our pastor. The pastor I, love, I just love that pastor. There, there. I just love the pastor. He's, so, he's just like a cute little kitty cat. Bless his heart. In the southern sense of bless his heart. Just love that pastor. Hey, well, I appreciate any thoughts and, and intentions of affection you have toward me, but I would uh, much more covet your prayers that I would have more of an appreciation, more of a perspective, more of a rapport with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I need. That's what God wants for me. And so when I take the attitude of my father to you and think about what does God want for you, now I can love you. I'm not thinking about me, I'm thinking about you and what does God want for you? And it's about a relationship with God. It's about the word, it's about your spiritual life. It's about glorifying God for eternity because of, uh, because of the privileges you receive from what you have done now. The inheritance that's coming, especially that package of reward, the reward of the inheritance, Colossians chapter three, that is coming for uh, for. In Colossians 3, those who are willing to serve and because of your love for Christ, suffer. So I believe Christian love is not the affection. It's far from, that's a silly thing to do. Oh, I just love you. It's, that's silly. That's compared to what we're talking about. Jesus Christ died for your sins because he loved you, Galatians 2, and he gave himself for you. God commendeth, demonstrates his own love toward us. 
How did he demonstrate it? Romans 5.8. While we are yet sinners, that's undesirable, not, the, not something that draws his affection. We're, while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. So that's what shows the love. So you can say, no, love is the intention. It's not the action. If you only have the intention and not the action, I contend you don't really have the intention. If you're doing the action, but it's not from the attitude that should produce it, it's not really love. Did you come by to help me today? No, my car broke down. I was coming to get some, get a, you know, I was coming to use your phone, but I'll help. Well, it turns out you, you know, you helped us right in the nick of time. Well, I mean, don't mention it. That's not really love. That, that, it was an accident, Right? You happen to help me out, but it wasn't from your intention. See, love is when I think about the other person. What does God want for that person? And then I start taking steps in that direction. This is just a little bit of review on, on Christian love. We've talked about it a whole lot. Now, test me out. Go look it up in the New Testament, agape. But I think this is the, the, the essence of it. You know, in the King James and, um, and other early English translations, uh, agape wasn't always translated love. Sometimes they use a different word. It comes from the Greek word for grace, charis. Charity. A lot of times you'll be reading your King James like charity. I think in, the, in 1 Corinthians 13 it says charity. Well, today we read charity as this way we're like, hmm, that must be for people in the old country. Because charity means that you've got poor people and you give them your extra stuff. That's charity. Oh, I'm not a charity case. Well, we all are totally impoverished of righteousness and in total need of God's grace. But charity is much better seen, obviously, as that which God's grace produces in us in a benevolent intention toward another. The disregard self, ask God, what do you want for this other person? And then acting on it. Can somebody tell me that if you have empty pockets, you have zero money, you don't really have a whole lot of time because you've got commitments that God has given you. You don't really know how to do much. But you can talk and you can think. Can somebody tell me how you can love someone in need with no money, no, no skills to improve their situation, and no real, no, not a whole lot of time to do something about what they're dealing with? Is there a way you can still love someone? Can you express that Christian caritao, that Christian charity, that agape love of self-sacrifice toward the other? Are you able to do it with just who you are with no other resources? How? Yes, we can pray. We can tell them what we have learned from Christ. The most valuable thing about me, the most valuable thing about me is what the Lord has put in me with his word. What he's given. Do I have that to give? You know, it's amazing. The word God has given you that you have in your heart, you actually get more of it by using it. You can't use it up. Well, I have this word. I'm going to not tell anyone because I don't want to lose it. You, you get more of the word the more you talk about it because you'll think about it. You'll think about these things. I think I'm convinced that's part of why God wants us to pray. He wants us to reinforce by recall and oration what he's taught us. I believe Christian love is where we are interested in God's best for the other person in a disregard of self where I'm using myself, my resources for the other person's good as God has defined the good.
Well, that, that solved that problem. Now, second problem of loving the unlovable or what we consider unlovable is a misunderstanding of where this love comes from. Pastor, I wrote down my note card. It is the willingness to see God's best for the other person and act on that best, okay, in disregard of my own needs. I wrote it down. It's got the three things in the little paragraph definition that, that Pastor Dave thinks he's gotten out of John 3.16 and Romans 5.8 and Galatians 2 and other places where love is defined as intention, action together and, and for, for the other person self-sacrificially. Now, I got that down, and I keep trying to do that, and I keep failing. Every time so-and-so, every time that sibling that I, I, I can't believe how nasty he, she, whoever is to me, I pull out my card, and I think uh, I'm going to love this person self-sacrificially, uh, and, and but I, I just seem to not be able to do it. And by the way, I'm having trouble forgiving. I I can't forgive. By the way, we often define forgiving as forgetting, which the Bible never does. Forgetting is a different concept than forgetting, and forgetting is a different concept than forgiving, but I contend that if you do forgive, uh, it'll be easier to forget, and uh, don't wait until you forget in order to to forgive, because that would be, uh, you would never then forget because you weren't able to forgive. Anyway, um, I'm having trouble with these loving, I can't rejoice I heard a good thing that happened to this person that hates me, and I cannot be happy for her. I can't. I hate her. I Christian hate her. I mean, I don't really hate her, hate her, but I just don't want to ever be around her, and if she died, wouldn't care. I don't hate her. See, this is where Christianity really lives. This is your real life. And so I got my note card out. It's by the phone. That doesn't make sense anymore. It means it's in my pocket. <laughs> it's by the phone. Remember that? I had that by the phone. I, 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 th- I try to do this and I can't. Well, there's a misunderstanding of where this comes from. You're not going to bootstrap this. It's not just uh, uh, magically I'm going to bring this forth from my own person. It's going to have to come from God the Spirit who lives in you. It's going to be His work in you. And so where can I get this? And um, the answer, interestingly, will, will be the Word of God. It will be the word of God. And the person with the note card is close because they are making a choice to do what God's word says. And we're really close to being successful. So our answer to the questions, uh, what is it I think I've given you from John 3? And hopefully that's made sense to you. And where you get it, the fruit of the spirit, God the Holy Spirit is love. John 15, one through 11 is the description of how God abiding in Jesus Christ will result in me bearing the fruit of his righteousness, which I think is exactly what Paul is talking about in Galatians 5, the fruit of the spirit is love. And that, that's what always pleases God when we do what he wants us to do. And in Romans 5, his love has been shed abroad in our hearts. And so this is the work of God in you. So let's go to God's word that instructs us uh, to do this in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. The longest introductory setup for the passage ever. Our answer is Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, which says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and so walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. I am told that the New American Standard is a woodenly literal translation that doesn't have much lyrical um, value to it, isn't artistic. But I read these words in this translation, and I think it is very melodious. I think it's beautiful. 
And I also think that hopefully you'll see something maybe you haven't seen tonight, maybe you have, but it'll be a great review. But there is a complexity in this statement in verses one and two, which um, gets into Trinitarianism, the difference between the Father and the Son. They're not the same person, the same, same God, one God and three persons. But there's two different persons in view here. And the relationship between the two is to be focal in our thinking so that we're able to enter into this. This is a picture of fellowship with God. It's a beautiful thought, and I believe that um, this is your answer. It is the inspiration of the Spirit through the Apostle Paul to put this word in your heart so that you are then, by what he says, able to go to God and his thinking before you go to the other person. I've got my note card. I've got that person that I'm supposed to love and I don't want to, and I don't feel like it, and I'm reading these words, and I'm supposed to want God's best for the other person. If I'm not actually thinking of God first, that he calls me to do this, that I'm doing this as a responsive love to him, then I'm missing the whole relationship. I'm missing the whole point of the exercise of loving the unlovable. Let me ask you another question. Why couldn't God in all his sovereignty and omnipotence from eternity past have not put this person in my path? Doesn't he know that my life would be so much better if he would do a little more trimming, a little more weed eating, grass grass trimming in my life? Doesn't he know that this is a problem person for me? Why is this in my life? Because you're supposed to rise to this occasion because this person is in your life in part to train you to have fellowship with God, to be like your father by being like his son. So the prior paragraph is the context for this, and it's the reason we're talking about this uh, specifically in Christian, in the discussion of Christian spirituality, because you have one of the key statements about the Holy Spirit from the Apostle Paul. Let me just read it very briefly. We talked about it Sunday morning uh, for, for some time. Um, somebody said that was the message on gossip, and it was. Um, somebody else said that's about sins, and it, and it is, but what we're going for is the, the, the summary in verse 30, be angry yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not grieve the devil. Sorry, do not give the devil an opportunity. Grieve him. Don't give him an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer. Okay, so we have mental attitude, sin, anger, giving the devil an opportunity because it goes to bitterness if you don't deal with anger and put it away and reject it and repent of it. So if I feel like oh, I have a right to be angry and I, and I, I let that kind of simmer and fester and become part of me even by you know taking it to sleep then in the morning i'm a different person i'm farther down the road to bitterness and that gives the devil an opportunity he who steals must steal no longer but rather must labor performing with his own hands what's good so they have have something to share with one who has need see that's agape love that's self-sacrificial concern for the other what did the what does god want for the other person what is their need and in this case it's an empty stomach he wants them to fill to eat because they need food. And so I provide it from my own work uh, as unto the Lord. Let no unwholesome word. So now we've gone from stealing and overt physical sin to what I say, to let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but instead only such as is um, good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I believe Paul is giving kind of a machine gun list probably to an amanuensis who's writing down, Paul, what did you just say? And he's writing as fast as he can 
Um, and in this case, it's backwards because it's Greek, so it's left to right instead of the good Hebrew right to left uh, of the 39 books of the Old Testament. Um, he's writing, and he's writing these things down, and it's a lot of Paul's lists are kind of, we feel like they're stream of consciousness, their category. And the Holy Spirit has inspired every word, case, uh, case ending, uh, mood, tense, everything. But, um, but the literary piece here is not to give you a, a systematic theology of sin. It's to say that there is a category of things that you can imagine. And all these things are sins. And all these sins have the same effect on your relationship with God who lives in you to glorify the Father. And that is the work of the Spirit in you. He is grieved, but you're sealed by Him unto the day of redemption. And in that statement in verse 30, there's a huge contrast. There is a rejoicing that should be my sealing. That means set apart to God and marked as His no matter what. And that's a cause for great joy. And yet, as I'm dirtying my garments, the portrait of the Spirit of God is grieving. It's, it's grieving, it's weeping, it's a picture of sadness where there should be gladness. Why? Because I'm contrary, I am hypocritical, I'm behaving contrary to my position in Christ. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. See, he keeps summarizing. So the work of the Spirit in me, the picture is grieving of the Spirit in terms of relationship. And now the summary of all the categories of sin, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. So verbal, mental attitude, all categories of sin, all malice. Be kind to one another. This is the alternative. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Okay, so there's your English summary of this awesome passage that I would remind you tells you about the work of the Spirit with respect to the way it relates to personal sin in your life. In Galatians 5.16, you cannot commit personal sin if you're walking in dependence on the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. So if I'm committing personal sin, what do you know I'm not doing? You know I'm not walking by the Spirit. If I am walking by the Spirit, what do you know I am absolutely not doing? Committing personal sin. See what I mean? It, you, they're, they're, that's Galatians 5.16. The language of possibility is very explicit in the Greek subjunctive mood. Now here, here, the picture is not inability or ability. It's relationship. It's tragedy. It's grief. I don't take, again, I've said before, I don't take from this that the Holy Spirit is in there boo-hooing. You know, why can't he just walk by me? I don't, I don't think it's, it's, it's the way we think of a jilted person that's been hurt. I think the point is that this should be rejoicing, but it's grief because it should be freedom in the, in the power that the, from the sin nature that you have in the Spirit that's being rejected because you're embracing Submitting to personal sin. It's Romans 6 where the believer who has died to sin is then resubmitting himself to it, going back under the yoke of sin. So you have this beautiful summary. Forgive one another as, as God has forgiven you. I got a question. If somebody, let's do it, let's make it real personal. I do something wrong to you or you or you. Everybody here is mad at me. Do something wrong to you. I wrong you. I, ish. That's, that's German. I hope that wasn't offensive, but I, if it is, just use it. I wrong you. I do something bad to you, right? That if you don't do something about it, you're going to be bitter toward me. Of course, this is great hypothetical, right? Because I'll never do anything wrong 
to any of you. Don't me. Okay, no. I'll forgive you. So, um, <laughs> so, I <laughs> so I wrong you, and you're commanded, I'm going to stand on it, you're commanded to love me. What do you have to do with the wrong that I did if you're going to obey Jesus and love me? What do you have to do about it? Because why? Because what is God's best for me? What does God say his best is for me from, from your action? What does he say is the best thing toward me who has wronged you? What's the, what are you supposed to do? Look, it says, he, he tells you, forgive each other just as God has forgiven you. He tells you what is the best for the person that wronged you. The best thing that you can do to me if I've done something to you is forgive me. Isn't that awesome? Men, don't use this in a fight. Don't use this in, a, in, a, in, a, I'm sorry, in, a, in an argument with your wife. Don't say, well, it doesn't matter what I said because after all, God's best for me, from you, is for you to forgive me and that would be Christian love and you're required to do it, so there. Don't play that game because you will be doing, the, you'll have the opposite effect of what you want, which is for your wife to, to take it to the Lord and then in his grace, uh, actually forgive you. A little thought experiment. The point is that you can see what God wants for the other person because he tells you, forgive the other person. And that's, thank you for 1 Corinthians 13. Love doesn't count a wrong suffered. I wanna, I wanna have, I wanna count that wrong. It was a juicy wrong. I had a big old calligraphy marker writing out the wrong suffered on the ledger. And I put it up in the place of honor where I could behold the wrong. I sit over here in my dinner table and I look at the wrong suffered and it gives me a sense of drama. I just appreciate so much the privilege I have to be bitter about this wrong suffered. And that gall, that poison, there is an addiction. There is a morbid addiction people get to that bitterness. And the Lord, let me ask you another question. If you're the party that's been injured, what's the best for you? What's God's best for you to do for yourself? Forgive. It's best for you. It's what you need from God's grace because of the poison, the bitterness, uh, the poison of bitterness. All right, let's zoom in a little bit on Ephesians 5 1, the next verse from that statement about forgiving one another. Zooming in on Ephesians 5 1. There's the Greek, Ganesta un mimetai tu theu hos tekna agapeta. 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 All right, uh, what does that mean? Well, um, you have a post-positive, <laughs> I love saying that, a post-positive inferential particle, un, which is, just means it's the second word in the sentence. Isn't that fun? I love academic language because it means all this awesome stuff. You're like, oh, that's what it means. You know, like ask your doctor, what, what exactly is the condition I have? And they give you this 16-syllable thing, and you're like, what is that? Tendonitis. <laughs> or it's a pulled muscle. But you've got all this language that makes you think you're going to have to, you know, go have surgery or something. Okay, Be, okay this is the, the, the therefore from verse, um, what, what was verse 20, 32, the, the therefore. Based on all that preceded about grieving the spirit through personal sin and the alternative was loving one another. Therefore, genestha. He gives you a present imperative command. Present tense is generally the portrayal of action that you're, you're being engaged to bring, bring yourself into the action. You're experiencing it in, in the same time the speaker is saying it is the way we think about it. Or 
don't think so much as time, but the portrayal of the action is your internal to it. Let me give you an example of the present tense. I am speaking is the present tense in Greek. I speak would be like the aorist tense. They're same, it's the same thing. It's the same action I'm describing, but different portrayal of the action. That's what we're doing here. The, the idea that I'm trying to bring across with this verb is that it's an ongoing thing that you need to do and you need to always do. I think it's a general responsibility that you're in any given moment able to look at. And it's the word genomai, which is one of your stock verbs in Greek for status, for status quo or for state of being. Uh, the word to be will often be the word genomai in Greek. The most common word for to be is Amy. Amy is the E-I-M-I is the Greek word to be, but genomai is very often used this way. It's interchangeable often. Sometimes it's not. The, the etymology of genomai is to become, not to be, but to become. You hear me? So if I'm using it in the present sense, I'm saying be becoming. That's ridiculous. It probably just should be translated be, but it's possible that he means let this be more and more so, become. And I think this is true for me. Isn't it true for you? Don't you need to become more and more like Jesus because we started off not like him at all and we grow with respect to our salvation and we put on Christ a little more. And as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 3, our love grows, increases and abounds. Love is maturing with our spiritual growth. So we are being or becoming imitators. So you have to be plus the noun, a, 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 a predicate nominative, imitators, mimetai, where we get the word imitate. We just threw an I on the front of mimetai and we said imitate. Did you know you're speaking Greek when you say imitate? It's just the word for imitate. Be imitators of God. So those who, what does an imitator do? He acts like him. This is the little kid whose daddy comes home from the army and he's a little kid, little three-year-olds in his little three-year-old BDUs, his little three-year-old uniform. And he walks up to daddy and he salutes. And he wants to be just like dad and he looks like his dad. That's the idea, imitation. And it's very important when you're talking about fathers and sons in the Roman world, in the Jewish world, in the Greco-Roman or the ancient Near East, the idea of imitation of father is how it is. Why do we know Jesus is a Jewish carpenter? Well, because he's born of the tribe of Judah and because his father Joseph is a carpenter. They call him at one point the carpenter's son, so we say he's a carpenter. Why do we do that? Because we know culturally, historically, you basically learn the trade of your father because it's a homeschooling paradigm for most of world history. So imitation of the father is kind of a, a, a thing that we all can grab onto. In fact, um, you know, what, what's your mom might have said? some point if you're me <laughs> you're just like your father well, i'm not trying to be well you can't help it i'm gonna need a minute <laughs> you're being just like your father well in a good sense that's what we're talking about we need to act like our dad abba father in romans chapter 8 therefore be imitators of god as beloved children uh-oh techna agapeta this is beloved children. This means that we belong to him. We're born again into his family. And this is, this is the description God has for you. So I've got a question. Are you a beloved child regardless of your imitation? I believe you are. I think God has born you again and that brings you into his family and there is a filial love for you because you're his. That we all know if we have kids. We all know having been kids if our parents loved us. And most of the time, for the most part, with some 
lapses in their own weaknesses. They did. They do love us. We know what it is for our parents to love us. We know what it is to love our children. This is what you think of yourself as, and this is your position. I'm a beloved child. So being that, look at the privileges. I mean, there are implications. This is pregnant with implications. A lot of... um, a lot of the self-help stuff is about having a proper view of self, self-image. They quit talking about self-esteem because it got to be cliche, but it's still there. This is the ultimate in self-image. I'm God's beloved child. And that grace is not because of the goodness I have. It's because of his grace, the goodness he's extended to me. And so the rationale for Christian grace, the grace of God, the the biblical rationale on how to be is because of the grace I've received, I'm a beloved child. How should I then live? I imitate my father because I'm his beloved child. Can someone give me an example of what we don't mean by imitate God? Because I'm about to read in verse two what it does mean. What does it not mean to imitate God? I'll give you one to create ex nihilo. God does that. We don't do that. You can't create out of nothing. That was the easy one. What else is there that you can't do if you're going to imitate God? Yeah, you can't judge your brother. Where did we read that? Romans 14? Because your brother has a judge and he'll stand or fall and he will stand because he'll be made to stand, right? Romans 14. So we don't take God's prerogative of being the judge of the other because that's God's business and that he doesn't share that. What else can't you do if you're imitating God? What does God do that you can't do? That you have no right to? Here's one. You better believe everything I say because it's me. You know, that is the exact definition of why we believe what God says because it is him who's saying it. You can't say that. No human being can say that. You don't believe me? Well, um, you're not God. Maybe you're confused. Maybe you're wrong. I, I do need a little bit more validation than you said it, right? But it's me, but you're not God. See what I mean? I've got, I could do this all day. It's a fun experiment to think what is it, does it not mean to imitate God? You can't die for my sins. I can't die for your sins. I don't have the goodness to extend to you that if you copy me, you'll be carrying forth divine righteousness, right? Lots of things we could say that this doesn't mean. The unbeliever, the scoffer will say, well, see, then this contradicts itself. No, this is life for us. Figuring out what he means by it is vital. What does he mean? He doesn't mean from eternity past that if I'm gonna copy God, then I will have a decree that will determine all that will be. (laughs) Sovereignty is off the table, but you know, on that topic of theology, I do want to say that the prerogatives of God and his eternal essence can be scaled. I don't create ex nihilo, but I'm creative, right? I don't create ex, out of nothing, but I take his materials and I make something of them for him to glorify him as his image bearer. I'm not the ultimate judge, but I do have to be a steward of what he's entrusted to me and make decisions for it. So I have, I'm not sovereign, but I've got authority over what he's given to me. See what I mean? So, so, but, but that's fun theology, but let's go to verse two because he specifies the way you're supposed to imitate him. 
And this is the answer to our question that we started with and we got ourselves all confused and jammed up about what it is to love someone that we don't find lovable. And peripateo, peripateta. Kai peripateta in agape and walk in love. Second command, the first command was to be something or to become something. The second command is to walk. Not a surprise, we're talking about walking in our discussion of the Christian spiritual life. Walk, and then a prepositional phrase, in love, agape. Walk in love, the noun, A-G-A-P, in love. And then a particle, just as. Kathos, kai, ha Christos, just as also Christ loved. Agape, pesin, that's the aorist um, third singular uh, for agape. Agape, he, as he loved me, not a present, but a simple past, just as Christ also loved us. Hamas loved us and par edokin, he gave over. This is the work of the cross. This is what he did in the incarnation to come die for us. He gave himself over on our behalf. Remember when I said John 3.16, love is not love until it wants and does. He, he loved us and gave. You could say loved us, comma, gave. The, the Kai could be... Um, Ascensive, or he even gave, or it could be he loved and gave like, a, like two steps. But the point is that the love that God shows us is an active thing. It's an intention with an action. It's that complex of motivation and carrying through. He gave himself over on our behalf. I've translated huper plus hemon. Huper plus hemon is the huper plus the genitive. I'm only gonna talk about that for one reason, because the doctrine of substitutionary atonement is under attack and it's rejected by people that know better because they can't think of how it could possibly be that God sends his son as our substitute to pay for our sins and satisfy his wrath. C.S. Lewis did not like that doctrine. In, he, in um, mere Christianity, he basically scoffs at the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, which sets my teeth right on edge in a book that generally I appreciate. Many, many good things about mere Christianity, the greatest work of Christian apologetics in the 20th century. But um, he doesn't like substitutionary atonement. And it's very popular in post-conservative evangelicalism in all your seminaries, your mainline seminaries, even the Southern Baptist seminaries, are, are many of the theologians rejecting the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. And I think it's in the Greek. pair plus the genitive means in the place of very often. As a substitute for would be a legitimate translation. And that's what he's doing here. I've translated on our behalf. He gave himself over in our place, on our, on our account. Who pair plus the genitive of hemon of us on, on for us would, would be the the easy translation. And certainly prepositional phrases don't prove much, but I think this is definitely a case where you have substitution. He gave himself self over for us. Prosphoron kaithusion as an offering and a sacrifice to God. God, where did God show up in this context? Who's God? Theos. Who is to God? To Theo. Who is God in Paul's discussion of Ephesians 5, 1 and 2? It has to be the Father because we're beloved children in verse 1 and we're imitators of Theos, of God. He's consistent. It's God the Father in verse 1 and it's God the Father in verse 2. The Son is making himself a sacrifice and a fragrant aroma to the Father. It's Trinitarian. And it's not the person of Christ and his humanity submitting himself to deity. 
That, that's, a her- that's an old heresy. Don't do that. It's the Son and His humanity submitting Himself to the Father. And this is the mystery of the cross. An offering and a sacrifice to God for a fragrant aroma. Very uh, late in Old Testament concept of the offering to God, the whole burnt offering is for the nostrils of God, to soothe Him, to please Him, because He likes that you consecrate your entire self to Him. And so this is the Lord Jesus in sacrifice in our place to satisfy the Father. I believe substitutionary atonement's in view here. You made the drive. Let's go through some summary observations. First, two commands in verses one and two, be and walk. The two commands are to be somebody, to be an imitator of God, which would be also to imitate God, and then to walk in love, to be and to walk. That means that who you are and what you're doing is God's business, and he cares about who you're being and what you're doing by virtue of these commands in the text. Second, command to be something means that we do what the thing is we're becoming. Don't write that down. Third, being an imitator of God the Father as his children means doing what God the Father does. That's why he says, be an imitator of God. But how will I know what God the Father does? See, that's why the Lord Jesus came. He revealed the Father. So much of the confusion people have about the Gospels has to do with Jesus saying, this is who God is, you're missing it. He's like this, he's not like you think, he's like this. Oh, well, he's, they're, they're violating the Sabbath by healing. No, you don't understand God. This is, the, this is exactly what God wants. So being an imitator of the Father as his children means doing what, what he does. And so now we can do one of two things. We can invent theology for ourselves and say, well, this is what God is like and have the God of our imaginings which is what post-conservative, post-American, post-Christian American religion is doing. We're inventing the new God of, uh, of uh, liberation theology or social justice or whatever. That's not what the Bible's talking about. Or we can do what God says in his word and see his son, which is the answer. What he does in verse two is love. And the way we know what love looks like is we look at the example of Jesus. Love is presented, fifthly, as an action-producing attitude in which one walks. An action-producing attitude in which one walks. It's the attitude, it's the heart, but it's the action that the heart causes that you can say we fully loved. Sixth, walking in love is therefore the lifestyle which will result in our imitation of God. Walking in love is the lifestyle, and I think everybody's like, yeah, you're just restating the passage however many different ways I can restate it so that you can't forget it. That's the goal. Seventh, walking in love is then specified with an example for us to follow. That is the example of Jesus. Walking in love is then specified with our example. Jesus Christ is the example. You don't get to guess and think and imagine what it's like. So remember, what, before I went to verse two, I said, what are the things love uh, acting like God isn't? Well, this is almost irrelevant because he tells you in the passage what it looks like to imitate God. It's to look like Jesus. So you walk like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the relationship between the Father and the Son is a model for our relationship. See, Paul stopped talking about you and started talking about Jesus and what he did. He gave himself for us, but then it was for God to receive that fragrant aroma 
It's an offering and a sacrifice to God. And so the thing that Jesus is doing with God to please the Father, see, that's, that, that whole theology of substitution becomes something that we are part of, not in terms of sacrificing ourselves for other people's sins, but that giving of self for God's sake on behalf of the other. And now you, you got your answer. How do I love this unlovable person? I look at God. I look at the Lord Jesus. I see he, he sacrificed himself for someone who's way worse to him than the person I'm struggling with. We're just sinners sinning at each other. We've got perfect righteousness looking at me and saying, that is a mess. He came and cleaned us up. We see the activities produced by the attitude of our father and the self-sacrifice of his son. We see the activities, the loving self-sacrifice produced by the attitude of God the father and the self-sacrifice of the son. So if I want to know what the father's like, I go look at the son. That's what Paul is doing. And it's the same thing John does many times in his gospel. I'm not speaking of my own. The things I've heard my father say, that's what I'm saying. If I spoke of my own things, you know, John 8, John 6, these discussions where he's saying, I'm just revealing the father. In John 17, he actually prays before going to the cross, I've done what you sent me to do. And the, the answer, if you've read John 1 through 17, is he's revealed the father. When the prodigal son comes up, when, they tell, when he tells the parable of the prodigal, the, 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 the four lost things in the prodigal son, right? The point is that you Pharisees are not like your father. You're not waiting for the sinner to come home. You're like the brother who rejects the sinner who has come home. You don't want me to go to the sinners and tax collectors and for them to be saved. You, you're not like God the Father. You're like Jonah. The contrast in Jonah is between God and Jonah, the, the, the self-righteous person. We see the activities produced by the attitude of our Father in the self-sacrifice of his Son. And so ninth, to be God's heirs and act as his sons, we imitate him by copying the example set by his Son, Jesus Christ. But I thought it was just about Jesus. Well, it turns out the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ is to get you into the throne room of the Father where there is incredible privilege. And I think this is the answer to why so few prayers in the New Testament are directed to the Son. Most prayers, except for maybe two in the New Testament, are directed to God the Father. Jesus, how do we pray? Our Father who art in heaven. Tenth, to, to restate for clarity, we conduct our relationship with God the Father as his beloved children by imitation of his love through the imitation of Jesus' self-sacrificial love. Now, I know I just took something that's very stated very simply and I made it complicated. My intention is not to, um, to complicate, to confuse, but to simplify, to clarify. But understand, how do I do this? How am I going to love this unlovable person? Well, there I am. If you're, if you're a woman, then just imagine the female uh, drawing, you know, that they put on the ladies' bathroom. But there is, a, there is a person, okay? And another person, in this case, same sex. Won't call people gender. Gender languages have gender. People are sexed. But um, the, 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 there's two people here, and they're supposed to, one person is supposed to love the other because I'm supposed to imitate God. And so before I look at that person, right, there's supposed to be this attitude in me that produces the action, and the action carried forth, we'll call it love. If I see, let me give you an example from 1 John. If I see somebody in need of the world's goods, John 3, 7, 1 John 3, 17, and I have the world's goods, and I see my brother in need, and I don't provide, how does the love of God abide in me? So th- there's the desire, the attitude that then goes forward in the action, all right? Now, 
The whole key to this is the bubble. The, the whole key to everything is the bubble. If you are looking at the unlovable object who has hurt you, that you're really struggling to forgive. If you're looking at me and looking in reasons for me if I've wronged you, or if you're looking at the other person who's wronged you, for why should I forgive you? You're not gonna find the, the answer. That it, you shouldn't. While we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is God's love. What I have to do is go to Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. I'm gonna act like my father. That means I'm not looking at you, I'm looking at Jesus and thinking what he did. How did he think? How did he love? And so I'm gonna walk in love by imitating Christ who gave himself over for me. So the attitude, the whole thought, this whole, this little bubble here is focused on the Lord Jesus Christ for God the Father's sake so I can imitate my father as a beloved child. And now I've got a whole new lease on life. My mission is not to just go through life and be satisfied with myself and other people. I'm okay and she's okay. Or I'm okay and you're okay. That's not my goal. My goal is to be imitating my father because I'm a beloved child. There's my identity. I, I've been forgiven a billion. I can forgive a, a hundred. And this is the power of love. This is what the Holy Spirit will do with the word of God in you. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. If you'll take Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 and the image of Christ, the imitation of Christ, the example of Christ in your thinking to the, to the love situation and you look at God first, this will be the work of the Holy Spirit through the word of God in you. That's the power for Christians to love. Our Father, we thank you for eternal life, for the privilege we have to love, even what we consider uh, unlovable in, in terms of our affections. Thank you that we can love those who hurt us, those who persecute us. We can love, as, uh, as Matt said, we can love, bless our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Thank you for the clarity of the scriptures that comes about when we spend the time on it, to meditate on it, to think about it. And uh, thank you for the circumstances in our lives, Father, that arise to test these things. We know you're going to challenge us by what we've considered tonight. Make us better, Father, to love, better at it, to imitate your son, and so walk as beloved children imitating you. We pray it in Jesus' name, and we all said, amen. amen.